0: hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of the green dragon podcast um i'm your host tom and we are excited to announce that isaac gibson who's been a regular guest on the show is now a co-host and so he's going to be doing shows with us and we're honored to have uh, our good friend joseph white on the show tonight talking about um kind of daily news understanding what's happening in america why the great divide is happening and how we can restructure that and then see where the conversation goes. So thank you, Joe, for coming
1: on. Yeah, thank you. Joe, Yo, it's really good to see you. It's good to see you too, man. Good. So, I mean, we were just talking about the the crisis border, uh, border crisis. Whoa, backwards. Uh, Yeah, the border crisis and kind of like what the agenda behind that is from either side. And so I think what we were just talking about Um, before we got into the show here was what the reason is for the the biden administration for allowing or pushing for the texas border to be open Um, we're talking about like kind of like cohesiveness of each argument and stuff like that so yeah that's kind of where we where we picked up before we started recording but yeah
2: yeah and in terms of like what you were saying earlier in Uh, about the cohesiveness of the left. I see a bunch of different things in play because after just finished reading, like I said, um, Achieving Our Country by Richard Rorty, the main leftist philosopher, which Dr. Papadopoulos um, gave to me upon graduation, essentially. Um, You have kind of like the progressive thinkers, which I see underlying all of the leftist thought. Then you also see this kind of like new world order government stuff going on. And I was just reading when I was um, flying back from New Hampshire a couple days ago about the new disease X and the treaty that they want to have with the World Health Organization and the Library of Commons in the UK has a really good, um, really good documentation of how that first came about and how they got involved with it Mm -hmm. and stuff. So when you say like, the cohesiveness of the left are we talking kind of like new world order stuff or like liberal philosophy or like i would say progressive philosophy um fundamentally or kind of like just our political party in the in our country yeah
1: yeah so i guess to kind of just recap a little bit for our listeners too about the the whole cohesiveness thing we're talking about is we were discussing basically like why on earth are in particularly the leftists and the Biden administration allowing these people to come across our borders when especially at this time right now we're getting into a, an election year why are they allowing this to happen when it's like particularly politically damning for them um and what we were talking about was basically this idea of cohesiveness with ideas on each side and i think that the the left especially the Biden administration has this, um, kind of cohesiveness of thought or idea that is not being portrayed in a very public way. They've, they've kept, they've kept everything very hidden. We don't know why they're promoting LGBT things like, um, in particular or why they're promoting minority things in particular, except for to get an uproar and a rage or about, about just certain issues. Um, but i do think that they have a certain idea or thought that is um that permeates through their actions that we just don't know the obvious reason for but i still think it's there i still think that the left and especially the biden administration has a reason for all these things even though it kind of seems stupid for us and kind of like you know it doesn't make any sense like why would they why would they like have this this conflict with texas right now right before the election it, it's, it doesn't have any sort of like practical outcome that benefits them. But I do think that it exists. There's a reason behind everything that they do. Um, whether or not it seems crazy to us, it's still there. It, they're just not willing to show all their cards.
2: Yeah, and- I will actually, if I could say and speak on why do they think that, honestly, is because, yeah, where I really see as we were talking about before we started to record about how it's come to fruition all of these actions and these thoughts is because of Dewey and Whitman um, getting into the education schools the idea of truth and the downfall of that and again Richard Rorty the author of Achieving Our Country talks about this progressive thought the reason why They want to support the LGBTQ movement, uh, the minority and stuff like that is because of this understanding that we are achieving our country. It isn't even America or anything like that. It's just that America has put into place the best means and ability to allow the progression of truth and our understanding of our relation to it. Kind of in a sense, we hold it within ourselves. So the reason why they are supporting the minority and different, like, different LGBTQ movements and stuff like that is because we have come to understand that to now be true, where it wasn't in the past, but now it is true. That is what they are arguing and holding. So that is why I think, in a sense, you see the leftist political movement, it's founded upon these philosophical ideas that... Now we have progressed, we've come to a greater understanding that the people in the past haven't, our founding fathers are no longer relevant, and we shouldn't pay attention to them because we have moved on. See how we have progressed, and they make all the argument through history, by their study of history, is seeing that because you can see the technological advances, and now that we have had the civil rights movement, we've had freedom from slavery, even though that everything that I'm saying could be argued for, but this is where they're coming from is that we have progressed as individuals, as human beings. And in a sense, in our very nature itself.
1: You explain more um, for both of us and for our listeners, like um, the relationship between um, the philosophy of Dewey and uh, Whitman and like what we're seeing now.
2: Yeah. So essentially Dewey and Whitman, well, let's see. I'm gonna back up a little bit first. <laughs> you've had um you've had throughout history an understanding that our human nature cannot change through the history of philosophy, essentially. And you see that with Herodotus, you see that with Thucydides. You see that with St. Augustine and his City of God. Um, you see that with Aristotle. You see that with Plato, that essentially our natures don't change. And where that first at least started to come about in philosophical writings that it changed was with Rousseau and his Discourses, where he has the savage man and the civilized man. Mm-hmm. And he says that man, savage man is where we should be. But we're not there because now we're civilized man, because... Throughout time, that is not trackable. Our nature has changed. Mm. Our nature has changed itself. And then from there, you get Karl Marx, you get Hegel, and you get uh, Fukuyama, who wrote The End of History after the Cold War, where he said, history is done. We have finally achieved world peace, which has obviously been shown to be wrong throughout history itself. But basically... um, this idea that throughout history, you can see that we have come to a better place than we were from the past. Therefore, we have come to a better understanding of our natures have changed. So Dewey and Whitman, um, in their philosophy, essentially argue that because we can see throughout history that our natures have changed, there is no such thing as an objective truth, a moral standard and therefore that breaks down so how do we actually come to truth for our present times even though it will change well it's through progress it's the this collectiveness this collective thinking of the majority of people that say no this is right kind of it's very abstract and false and wrong honestly when you really delve into it but that's kind of like the understanding does that make sense
1: no that makes sense i'm just um I'm, i've always been curious about this question i'm sure most people listening and um everybody's kind of asking themselves like even if you haven't studied history like herodotus or Thucydides or Aristotle all that stuff like what do you understand or how do you understand the idea of human nature changing or even if it can change like what does that even mean and why is that a premise for progressivism and even for like modern thought um like, how does, yeah, first of all, how do you understand human nature? How does it change if it can change? And why has that thought or that idea got us to this point? Like, why on earth do people yeah, think where, where now. Change? Yeah, it's. I mean, it well, seems to me, I'm sorry, just really quickly. It seems to me to be a very, like, evolutionary kind of idea. Yes, yes. But it, is. it also seems to be a very damning evolutionary idea where it's like, if our human nature is changing all the time, then how on earth could we possibly relate to the people before us? Mm. Especially like thousands of years ago, but like from our studies at Wyoming Catholic with, you know, Tom and Joe here and myself, um, we, we, from what we read, it doesn't really seem that human nature changes. We yeah. all desire things that we shouldn't. History repeats itself. <laughs> that we should. yeah. History repeats itself. Yeah. Um, uh, Herodotus
2: says that himself. He says that I'm going to write this work. It isn't going to be poetical Homeric like uh, Homer before me in the Iliad, but I'm going to write this so that you can learn from man himself, learn from man's past actions, carry that on. And that's how you can learn from human nature is by studying not only like movements in history and like wars come about and the rise and fall of civilizations but individual actions of man that's how you can learn about human nature and then literature also plays a huge part into that that is how we can learn from human nature but these progressives say that no actually that teaches us history teaches us that we have progressed to a better point we have greater understanding through our downfall of slavery through now that we have democracy um, into effect and we hear the voices of people. But the crazy thing is that that's just not true because in Herodotus and Thucydides, they already go through all of that and they've had democracy. They've had that history has shown it. It's just people actually don't study their history, I would say.
0: It almost seems like too that what they're trying to do with the progressive ideology is say that we aren't fallen anymore. Almost like they're trying to give themselves their own salvation, like saying... No, that's 100% true. Yeah, like, we've come so far, so we don't need anyone else. We're superior. Right. right. Well, and tapes. that's
2: where St. Augustine, he comes in with his idea and city of God. Um, He has kind of like three phases of history. He has um, man after the fall, essentially, then you have the incarnation and then you have like the waiting period, which we're in, which is the second coming. So if you have no belief in a God, if there is no God, what hope is there except our individual choices and actions. So therefore, because there is no God, we can bring about essentially a utopia here on earth. Mm. Even though they don't want to say the word utopia, Richard warty, he does use it a couple times in his book Achieving Our Country, where it's just like he says, Okay, don't think about it as utopia, but think about it as a never ending project to get closer to that, essentially.
1: Interesting. Yeah. There's a um there's a very interesting essay that C. S. Lewis wrote. Um, if you if y'all haven't read it yet, I would highly recommend it. It's called Is Theology Poetry? Mm. Is I, yeah he goes through the whole essay discussing whether or not like theology is good poetry and all that yeah. and he ends up getting to one point in the essay where he says theology is horrible poetry it's the worst poetry there is and it's because it's not of man and he ends up going into this discussion about the scientific re- um um scientific revolution yeah um And he basically describes the scientific revolution as being the perfect Shakespearean tragedy, where you have this chaos, this abysmal chaos at the beginning where something comes from nothing, the Big Bang, as a scientific... uh, Oh, sorry, he calls it the scientific experiment. He doesn't call it the scientific revolution. The, the, The scientific experiment, where everything comes from nothing. You have this extremely long series of events that finally leads to man and man being this feeble like scaleless featherless clawless creature comes out of nothing and he dominates nature yeah. and there's the first act which is everything coming from nothing the second act where man comes into the picture and he finally like starts to recognize his capabilities and in, in, in response to nature and in reaction with nature and then the third act where he comes to his fruition, where he comes to his full power and he dominates nature. And then in the fourth act, mother time or father time and mother nature, both come together and destroy him and bring him down to nothing. And the fourth act, it goes back to where it, the first act where there was nothing it's, there's this like kind of like chiasmic kind of parab, um, parable, structure of nothingness to perfection to destruction and he basically described the scientific experiment this idea of man's evolved from this thing that he could never get to naturally right i mean like or not naturally but immediately like we came from apes and now we're people and then eventually yeah, we'll yeah. and then we'll we'll decay um and individually that is our lifespan. We came from absolutely nothing. We came from this ball of chaos. A sperm and an egg somehow came together and created us. And we rise as infants as like we're we're there. We're kind of this feeble nothingness yeah, yeah. against the world. And then we rise to our fruition as our manhood or our womanhood. We we come to the pinnacle of our existence and then we fall. Um, and that he was basically that is the perfect explanation for the the secular or modern man is like that's all they have without god is they have this vision of it's just me against the universe and when it's just you against the universe like you were saying joe it's like you have no other choice but to progress and to become something different and to become something more to evolve to become something better than your environment and right now what we're seeing is In our environment, especially in a technological age, is that we're not just competing with time and mother nature. We're also competing with each other, especially with like TikTok and Facebook and Tumblr and and Instagram and Twitter and all these things. We're competing with each other to become the better and the best thing. And so these different fads pop up like LGBT, like, oh, I need to be something different, something cool. Or like the leftists, they're like, "Oh, we need to be super compassionate. And let all these like let all these immigrants into our country, so that we can show how compassionate and awesome we are. We're better than the people before us who conquered everyone. We need to be a better America, not one that like you know goes to war with natives who are already killing each other anyway. Um, we need to be someone who is compassionate and like set up all these memorials and have all these feast days for secular reasons." To show that we're better than the other thing, so that we can survive. But what is the end of that destruction? Um, I mean, there's, there's the end of that is destruction, yeah, and there's yeah. no there's no end to that cycle. Um, and that is like what we're saying with Thucydides and Hieronymus, like or oh, sorry, uh, Herodotus and Thucydides, like they're saying we we wrote this so that you could learn from man. Yeah, you don't learn from man of what is man. You're going, to, you're going to end up falling into this cycle of, like, I just need to get further and further ahead. But that ultimately, no matter how far you succeed, ultimately leads into destruction. If and that's you... where
2: you have the two, um, um, let's see, Nietzsche and Teilhard de Chardin also, who's a, a crack theologian of the Catholic Church, honestly, um, where they fall into this idea of the evolutionary and, be, and for Nietzsche becoming the Ubermensch. And Nietzsche is probably the most popular philosopher now. So again, if you don't have anything and you want to avoid that vicious cycle, um, which Karl Marx very clear puts forth in terms of the cycle of the oppressor and the oppressed, it just keeps repeating, repeating. And his idea was to break that. And that is where a lot of his stuff comes from. But, but it,
1: yeah and that it's idea. amazing though because that idea of the oppressor versus the oppressed can be tracked onto the evolutionary idea like the survival of the fittest the the oppressors oppress and then you know whoever can get past that gets past that um and if you're able to rise above that if you're able to rise above the oppressor then you win but you can't win because then you become the oppressor and then the cycle continues.
2: So the thing, though, is, is that in terms of the leftist philosophy, they see that and they want to break that. And that's why, again, you have Nietzsche, where it's the idea you can become the Übermensch, mm. uh, And he does it in a dark way. Or Teilhard de Chardin, though, he does it in a more evolutionary and hopeful way. That man is coming to himself through history and it's going to take time until basically man becomes god so in order to make sure that we don't fall into that cycle and if you don't believe that our natures can't change and that our um if you could believe our natures can change and that there is no god then the only hope is to use everything at our hands to be able to progress to a better place a better society for everyone to live in. God that is their thought, and that is why you're going to help out the minorities. That's why you're going to help out the LGBTQ and all of these other places. That is where their idea is coming from.
1: Right there, in their eyes, God is or uh, man is God. Oh yeah, hundred percent. But there's one interesting
2: thing you were saying earlier, Isaac. How the idea that you have to follow this fad or that fad. What because there is no God or man is the only thing man has an inherent desire to belong to a society or a group. And that's why you have, I'm going to do this TikTok challenge. Well, I'm going to identify as this gender or this new one. I'm going to make a new one so that I stand out and I actually have purpose and worth. I actually have an identity to belong to, which is so sad because that will actually not last because it only lasts as long as you're alive and then it's gone because it's just going to change again it's a very despairing place to be in but it makes sense why they're trying to identify to be part of this one group or this other one and then i can't offend this person because that's not a good thing to do and it's just a really sad cycle that that's why you get a lot of nihilists today where at
0: the end nothing matters you know yeah yeah it's interesting because like they're trying to say that their whole life's meaning comes down to what they decided to be. Yeah. Or do or through do, their your actions. Yeah. Instead of realizing that there's an objective reality that's bigger than them and trying to understand what that means and then how they fit inside of that, which is a far more interesting life than trying to just kind of come up with your own thing as you go. Cause like, you know, we're still trying to discover what does it really mean to be a man and a woman 6,000 years yeah. later. Yeah. And then how are they going to figure it out? Like, I'm going to be a new gender and I'm going to figure out my lifetime. You know, it's like, it seems so like futile. And then like you were saying, despairing, you know, it's very lonely. Yeah. And that's why you get so many nihilists today. Yeah. Yeah. And it
2: is very sad because if you can't be belong to something that's greater than you, what do you want yourself to be the greatest thing? And you are the arbiter of what is right or wrong or morality for yourself and for everything else. I say that history says differently, man despairs when that happens, when he is the only thing and the only deciding factor, he gets pretty bored. That's why you do have so many TikTok trends and everything like that. It's because you're trying to be part of something else. But what essentially what they're preaching is that, well, you can be the center of it all. The fact is, is like, no, you're going to be part, like you said, of this like greater cosmos, this greater design that is out there. And then you can be ennobled and like work towards that. But they hate that idea of having some kind of standard by which man needs to mold himself to or like act towards and perfect himself and become better towards.
1: Yeah, and I would say that there's kind of like a twofold explanation. Oh, I mean, there's probably more, but I would say like just for our purposes, there's a twofold yeah. explanation for this kind of thing is that. um, First of all, on a very personal level, very like individual level, everybody looks at the world through their own eyes and they look at them, they look at the world and they judge it and compare it and discern the world through. An understanding of themselves which is something that is not new it's not a new idea it's very aristotelian it's very um platonic it's also very you know very ancient um this idea of like i understand the world through my eyes and else through myself um and i remember dr jeremy holmes um one of our professors at wyman catholic talking to us about this idea of the imaginative self and he gave us a very simple example i think s- some of us after class one day was we were talking to him about this idea cuz he mentioned it during a class and we asked him more about it and he was like imagine you're imagine you're going up to a really really pretty girl and asking her and like you're going to ask her to go out to coffee with you so the moments before you ask her to go out to coffee with you what are you thinking in your mind? You're probably imagining like, okay, these, this is, this is the girl that I'm thinking of. This is like what I want to take her on this little coffee date. And this is how I'm going to, this is how I'm going to say the words. This is how I'm going to phrase it. This is how I'm going to be standing when I say it, like I'm yeah, yeah. thinking about when I'm doing this action. And for a person who's a little bit more skeptical of themselves and probably for most people who are a little bit nervous, they're probably going to be imagining that situation and imagining that girl saying, No, I'm not gonna go on that coffee date with you. And his 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 whole point about this example is that we have this imaginative self that we we take out and we implant on the imagined imagination of the other person or the other circumstance that we're gonna be put into. Mm-hmm. So if I'm going to ask a girl on a coffee date and I'm thinking to myself, like, you know, this is how I'm going to say it. This is how I'm going to be looking. This is what I'm going to say, like everything. And then in my imagination, I'm like. Looking at the other person who's actually me because I've implanted my imagination on them, what would I say to myself if I asked myself for a coffee date, especially if I was a skeptical person, I would probably say no. So what I think every individual does to themselves, unfortunately, on a deeper, deeper level is they say no to themselves to the things that are good for them. Mm. This is a very dangerous thing, and I think it leads us to recoil upon that that experience or that circumstance that we've imagined and rely completely upon ourselves for truth and for certainty and for determination and And so we go into any circumstance very skeptical especially the the people of this age we go into any circumstance very skeptical how many people have you met on the street where you say hello to them or say like how how's your day going and they're like wait why are you asking me that like do you have something in mind it's like no no no, no. i just want to know um everyone's so skeptical because everyone's portraying this imaginative self onto everything. Mm-hmm. And if you do that long enough and you do that strongly enough and intently enough, what ends up happening is you create this false reality within yourself about yourself in reflection of everyone else. And if you're doing that in relation to mass media, like TikTok or Facebook or Twitter, all those things, yeah, you, you implant your imagination of yourself, which has been fed by everyone else's input, and you create this monster within yourself that is self-devouring, where it's like, I have to be this kind of thing in order for other people to like me, because it's my image of what other people see. I'm implanting my image on the world in order to get feedback. Um, and so this like LGBT thing, the reason why it's become such a fad, I think, in recent years is because people have been walking around looking at everyone else and seeing what everyone else is doing. And they're projecting this imaginative version of themselves onto the person, replacing their intentions, their incentives, their motives, their morals with their own. And if they have a poor vision of themselves that's where they're going to see the other person looking at them. They're going to say like, Oh, if I'm looking at Joe white right now, and if I'm only seeing Joe white, the way that I see myself, or if I'm only imagining Joe white, seeing me as the way I see myself, I'm in a pretty bad spot. So I better make, I better make that better. The only way to make that better is to do something different. But the only thing you know is what, you know, Yeah. (laughs) It's just cycle of like turning on itself of like keeps going needs to see me as special, but well, you've planted your vision of special onto them for yourself. And so it's like a vicious cycle of like, I need to become something totally different, totally obscure to everyone else and to myself. And it's just, it, it, it gets crazy. Like I can't even like describe it. Yeah, and it's really interesting that you say that because everything that you were saying there.
2: As you were explaining that was so much focused on self on me, that's the whole idea. Viewed, me whole self. you know and just self and that creates also a vicious self-centered and just selfish life and imagine that's just got to be so miserable because instead like we were talking about earlier if you actually fit into this greater plan this greater cosmos and you fit into that and you work on placing yourself and by playing your role and actually acting through that that is where you actually have a sense of belonging and a true identity you don't find it in yourself in the selfish way like you were saying through the imaginative self but actually by fitting in to this greater cosmos and that is like what a lot of religions have essentially
1: right and and the and honestly like um Every religion has the benefit of drawing the individual out of themselves. Every religion calls the individual to say, like, look at something other than yourself for a gosh dang second. <laughs> like, come on, you're like, you're not the most important thing. There's this giant orb of glowing hot lava in this in the sky that <laughs> is dictating what we do during the day. Yeah. And I mean, like I said, it was a twofold problem. The first problem is that focus on the self, the self imagination. The second thing is like if you we were naturally kind of geared to do that, and then that's the extreme of it. Like we go to ourselves constantly for reaffirmation. Yeah. The second issue is that we denied what you're saying the existence of something greater than ourselves, and if you have the denial of the greater existence of the self. Yeah, with the self is the most important thing and I portray my imaginative self under everything else, what you get is complete and utter chaos. Because those two things, they just breed that. Like if you are like, I'm relying completely on myself, not even my community, not my family, not anything, just myself. And there's no greater purpose, which all those other things rely on community family all those things rely on a greater purpose if you don't have that greater purpose it's just pure and utter chaos
2: yeah i had a thought there and i'm trying to grasp
0: at it but well maybe tom can grab it for you (laughs) and these are these are really good thoughts because it's it's so interesting how you've been identifying isaac like the internal dialogue people have about how they perceive themselves and then thinking everyone else perceives them in the same way. So it almost like makes a permanent barrier between someone else actually coming into their life. Yeah. So it's almost like it's that, um, it really is kind of like what Dante was saying with like, hell is like, you just keep involving into yourself more and more. And that's like the levels of hell. like how self-centered are you? Because like, the definition of like hell is being alone. Mm-hmm. Like that's the worst suffering. Hold it in on yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And right. It,
1: but it, also, just, just to point in really quickly, it's I mean, hell is the absence of God, which is that twofold issue we've been talking about. It's the self, the like the, the total consumption of self, and the absence of something higher. Yeah. So, anyway. Yeah.
0: And you think about God, God is family because there's three persons in one being. It's like the perfect mm-hmm. unity right and that unity from love is what created this world mm-hmm. and so he wants to share that with us and so it's so interesting that's like we're sold a lie that like we're not lovable therefore we shouldn't right. be loved therefore i won't let someone love yeah and then yeah it's like you feel very despairing because it feels like it's all on your own mm-hmm and, and the only way to make other people like you or love you is to be exceptional enough that they didn't expect that. And so they want to learn more about you. Mm-hmm. So you got to be so wild that it's like, hey, someone's going to notice me. Yeah. Because there's always that desperation of like wanting to be noticed and be seen. That's why people are hooking up all the time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because there's... um Novelty. You know, Layers to this, but just like, it's a lot. Yeah.
2: Well, there's one thing with that, because I remember my thought now, what you've been saying, Isaac, and you, Tom, that I wonder if part of the reason why this is so prevalent, it seems today, maybe has been in the past. I have to read my history, (laughs) but maybe why it's so prevalent today is because, like you were saying, Isaac, how we perceive the world is through ourselves, through our senses, right? If you are always perceiving the world through just living in a city and everything that reflects man, the creations of man, things that are less than him, then that's going to bolster up who you are as an individual and your capabilities. But when you actually go out into the wilderness and experience things that weren't made by man or created by him, when you're on top of a mountain, you see how small you are in Contrast to everything else, but then also you see how tall you are, like how high you can get naturally without the aid of technology. But today you see people completely surrounded, and everything that they grasp with their senses is made by man. Like a story <laughs> is that when I was able to lead people in the wilderness for two years as a fuel instructor, um, I would get high schoolers every time who would always say, Wow, look at that picture. That looks like the screensaver on my computer. It's like, no, actually, do you realize it's the other way around? That looks like your screensaver on your computer. It's just an inverted way by which we're actually able to see ourselves fitting into this greater idea or cosmos, whatever we want to call it. We're completely divorced from that now because we're surrounded by the light switch that you can just turn on, the temperature and stuff like that. And people out there in the wilderness all the time will complain like, it's so cold, it's terrible. And it's just like, what can I do? It's just like, well, this is the real world. We can't just turn on a thermostat or something. Or one time these kids ate their food too quickly and we're one lunch ration short on the 21 day trip. And they're like, Joe, we want more food. It's like, well, I can't just make it appear out of nowhere. Maybe we should practice the virtue of temperance more next
1: time. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And that's, I think that's very important too, because we live in such, we live in such a time and such an era where, I mean, we're both—all um, three of us—we're inside of rooms right now that are heated, yeah. lighted, and and cooled, or like we can open our windows and get all this stuff, and we're we're isolated from the outside world in maybe like smaller ways, like you're only like a doorway or a window away from the outside world, but it has such a huge effect on our psychological development and understanding of the world. Yeah, and yeah, it it our our own creations reflect something about ourselves and we're like well i live in this protective creative bubble and so why shouldn't i live in my own internal protective bubble of myself
0: mm-hmm. um
2: and it's never encountering like true danger or realizing that can happen and i think that's where it plays into like this progressive idea like oh we have come so much better and stuff like that i haven't been in contact with any violence and stuff. And that's why you have people so surprised at the horrors that are happening in Ukraine and Israel.
1: Or on the border. Like I haven't been down to the border. I have no idea what's going on down there.
2: Exactly. But when you're like removed from that, it, it does make sense to me that it's so easy to see that like, oh man, has progressed. We have flushable toilets. Like I can live a sedated life, you know, that doesn't actually encounter true potential danger and you don't have people being fully human anymore because a it's again you're living in this secluded bubble like you were saying
0: yeah i think that's part of the the misunderstanding that i think people get when they say progressive because i think when people say we're conservative what we're meaning is like we're conservative to the values that um God made the world. There's natural law. There's moral law, and we need to follow that law because this is the way God set up right. the world. Yeah, and then other people look at progressivism as like, oh, we're able to build things, therefore we're a greater people. Yep. So it's a the Babel right there. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not being able to use our mind to build something doesn't mean that we're therefore a better person. We're understanding how to use our minds to construct material into a better resource. Right. So that's just an advancement in technology, which has nothing really to do with advancement in morality.
2: And that's exactly what St. Augustine says in the City of God. Yeah. Um. Because I like went through and underlined every part that said progress, you know, or mm-hmm. man's nature or, yeah, being able to progress in general. Mm-hmm. And that is what he said. He said undoubtedly we have advanced in technology and he was saying this back then (laughs) that we've advanced in technology on our ability to live but in terms of man's more morality Mm -hmm. and what he is inclined to do and what he's not inclined to do that has not changed
0: yeah and history shows that yeah it's it's essentially because like what technology is is just the um every form of technology is made for in um, essentially you reduce the amount of input for greater output so every new layer of technology is doing that so like you can condense energy into a substance like gas which is higher power so you can move faster with less. So right. if you try to do the same amount of power with wood, you need like a truckload with wood for the same amount of energy you have in gas. Or like nuclear is like a million times more powerful than gasoline.
1: Yeah. So
0: it's like how do you use less energy for more output? Like you went from shovels to bigger shovels to excavators. So it's like one person can do more by himself. Yeah. So you can yeah. do more. So like... When people look at that as saying, oh, we're progressing as people, it's like, well, we're just understanding the laws of physics better. yeah, And then how we use those for our own benefit as we see in the world. And so when you try to divorce that from like saying, well, no, those are just really good things that we can use to better our lives because understanding the whole premise of being human is that we came into this world with free will we lost the graces God gave us. And from that, we're in a state where we can either choose him again or we'll go in the dark path. Um. Without that idea, people look at technology as like their savior for themselves. It's like their way of making sure that themselves are always taken care of for. Mm-hmm instead of using it as like, how do I use this to better other people's lives? So they come closer to the final end, which is God. Right.
2: And thus by doing so, you're also taking care of yourself at the same time. Exactly. You're, you can't find salvation in yourself.
0: Yeah. It's not. Yeah. It's, it's all like very, what can I do that's best for me? The way I see best now, like, Like, let's say. Yeah, like, like, so the candle was really good invention. Mm -hmm. And then when the light bulb came out, people were able to read more. So then personal reading went through the roof. Like people started reading books. Yeah. because we had the printing press also. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just like another access towards something that all people can use. Mm -hmm. And then it just like, oh, everyone started expanding upon what they can use. Mm -hmm. But just think that because we're able to use resources better, we're therefore a better person. It's like, well, that doesn't really play into the understanding of natural law. Because... Well, I,
2: I see what you're saying, what they would argue against that too. Um, again, where the first person who started this, like I said before, was Rousseau's idea between the savage man and the civilized man. Mm-hmm. But where it really took off was with Hegel, and the best explanation of, like, Hegel's idea could be fine in Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, whereas Kolnikov is basically justifying his actions, what he did um, to his friend by the murder of the old woman. Though he didn't tell his friend he did such a thing. Yeah. But he talks about how the greater truth, the spirit, essentially, is coming into the world. Mm. Slowly by actions of man, and he has no control of that. And so, therefore like Napoleon was justified in what he did because we're actually able to um, have better understandings of political structures and government and put better things in place. A really, really good book that also talks about this idea is uh, Plague Journal by Michael O'Brien. Have either of you guys read that?
1: No, I have not.
2: It is, it's a very good book about this journalist in contemporary times, but essentially he has this conversation with he and his father and his father is trying to justify the idea of abortion um because it's like well it's better for society in the whole in the long run or yes we're going to cut down all these trees on this mountain and destroy these beautiful landscapes and stuff but we need to do that in order that um, we have better peace with man in the end in a society but then his friend Uh, The son was saying, no, we can't do that because you're ignoring the individual people. Mm. We need to actually focus on each individual person. And Jordan Peterson talks about this a lot in terms of the sovereignty of the individual, Mm. where we need to work on bettering ourselves and investing in each person individually. And that's what the son was arguing. And the father said, well, that will take a very long time. Like our solution's faster. But then the son's like, That may be true, but my solution is the more sure way. And again, if you don't have this idea of belonging to this greater plan, then of course, you're going to cut corners on morality and do things and justify it to say, well, it'll be better for the human race in the long run, because that's what I'm looking for, Mm.
1: essentially. Yeah. Yeah. So... I mean, how do you think that uh, Russo's idea of the savage man, yeah, into what we're seeing now? And I guess also, it would, I guess it would require a little bit of explanation about what the savage man is for Russo. But no, that that's a good question, and
2: how we got with that today. Mm. He he says that savage man didn't have strife with other man because he was just by himself. Mm. He would have sex with a woman when he wanted to, then leave and not interrupt with another man he would go get berries and pick them up from the forest and stuff he wasn't in community with man and so this there was actually peace though i don't know if you can really say if there's peace because you just never have interactions with other man essentially but through slowly through time that you can't see so he says um we they started to band together and thus you had different little societies and civilizations and thus you have civilized man. And that's a bad place. And he wants to go back essentially. Um, Though he doesn't think that's necessarily possible. Um, And so that is like the idea of the civilized man and the savage man essentially. So today how people are seeing that Yeah. In the past, maybe we were much better as savage men, but we can't return there. So we're going to use all everything at our disposal, all of our means of technology and like what you were talking about, um, in order to make a better society. And that's what they want to do all along is make a better society because essentially that's all you have to live for. And that kind of makes sense. Otherwise you'll just become a nihilist though. That is where individuals tend to go but if you're part of a greater society as a whole you can work towards that and you see that so clearly with klaus schwab's um globalization 4.0 um and that was like the inspiration for my thesis um globalization 4.0 in the world economic forum and you have like the whole treaty about disease x that might come out it's like for the betterment as a whole and yeah does that answer your question Isaac? It-
1: yeah i think it does and i would just comment that i think that in a very different way that work society has been or is in the direction of reducing itself back to the savage man especially within the context of social media say more so um I mean, I've never used TikTok. I don't have a TikTok or anything. Um, I've heard a lot about it. I've seen some, um, but I've also seen people's interaction on social media, like on Facebook or Instagram, Twitter, things like that. And what I have seen and what is pretty widely known is like, you know, when you're when you're behind the the wheel of Facebook or Twitter, it's kind of like a, you're kind of like in your, in your own car, like you're you're willing to do road rage when you're in your car, but you're not willing to do it in person. Um there's this kind of like isolated, very personal view of your own world from behind your phone or your steering wheel, I suppose. of uh, I just do my own thing. I interact with myself and my other reactions with other people are kind of just, you know, they're minute or they're not very significant. Well, except for
2: one thing that that's not necessarily Rousseau's vision of Savage Man because no, no, man not, no. is so interconnected. So it would be like a Savage Man in a different sense then I guess, because man that's does cool. rely through social media and stuff to like, Put an image of himself, and he falls through that. Like what you were saying earlier.
1: Right. So yeah, what I'm saying is that it's a it's a different view of the savage man, but it's not it's not too dissimilar. It's 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 not too different. Um, in in the sense that when you're utilizing social media, when the way that most people do, yeah. it's in a, it's in a way that is very introspective and very kind of like this only affects me if I do this thing. Um, if you post something on Facebook or Twitter or TikTok, or whatever, yeah. Um, yeah. it's all about you, whatever other people say, it doesn't really affect you and you can block people, you can deflect comments, you can do all that stuff.
2: Except that in a sense, <laughs> like you were saying earlier, is affecting them in a very real way because they're putting their identity and self image based on how other people react to them.
1: Right. So it's like a combination of like being a savage, but also being social. So it's like a weird kind of like combination of like, I'm isolated, but I'm doing it in a way that is social, (laughs) Mm -hmm. which is very interesting because it's not how man is supposed to operate naturally, which is where Russo is wrong, where he's like the savage man is not how he's supposed to operate. Um but we're kind of treating social interactions in a savage way where it's like, I am my own person. You can't tell me, you don't know me, you know, that kind of thing. Like, you don't know my life. You can't say that about me, but you're putting yourself out there at the same time. It's a weird phenomenon where it's like, you have people putting themselves out there in a very public way, but as as they get interaction they're like, "Oh, this was a this is my post. This is my thing. You can't tell me how to live." Um, it's a very savage response to a social interaction. Um and I I kind of see that that's that's basically how society is today. It's like it's a very um it's a savage it's a savage way of living with a social response and you have a savage reaction. I mean like
2: Well, it is definitely true that we're just because of our fallen state and fallen nature, as we believe, like you will naturally be savage. And that's why you need grace. That's why you need that belonging to something greater to not live in that state.
1: Right. And for even with those people that don't believe in grace, like you need community, you need family, you know, those things. Mm -hmm. Again, that's where Rousseau goes wrong, where it's like, no, you can't just pick berries by yourself or like sleep with every woman you want or like do things on your complete own. Like you have to do things in relation to things of your own kind. Like there's no there's no animal on the planet that does things on its own. It does it in schools or um, groups or um, prides, or it doesn't. It, it does it in collective. Like I mean, every individual is its own individual at the same time, but it can't be an individual without a group. And there's um, there's a very interesting and uh, insightful online course from Hillsdale. Um, there's a lot of free courses on Hillsdale that you can take. So shout out to Hillsdale. Um, there's this one course that you can take on Hillsdale that um, dives into Genesis. And he describes this one instance in Genesis where um man meets Eve. And before he meets Eve, he goes around naming all the animals and doing all the things that man, Adam does like before, you know, he meets, meets a woman or anything, but, Um, there's this very interesting point where he, he names all the animals and then, you know, God looks at man and says, you're not fit to be alone. And so he ascribes him a partner by, you know, pulling out his rib and doing all that stuff. And it's the very first time in scripture where man refers to himself, where he says, you are woman from man, you are taken. And the theologian on the Hillsdale class points out that man is not able to recognize himself without his counterpart. Mm. And because he says, you are a woman from man, you have been taken. So he names her like he did all the other animals, but he says, Oh, you're not just an animal. You've been taken from me. Mm-hmm. It's only when he sees his counterpart that he's able to say from me, From man yeah and what he points out is that man is not complete without a companion and you can interpret that as being like you know the sexual companion like your wife um but he goes further to say that like you know it's not just about not just about the sexual companionship of another human being it's about we're able to identify ourselves by comparing ourselves and being in, in association with other people yeah, of other things of our kind. And so we're not designed to be by ourselves. Uh, we're not designed to be alone. And that's why like in, in you know, in Catholic societies and Catholic um, culture, we have monasteries where nuns and monks live together in community and where we have marriages between a man and a woman, where the man and the woman are together and they form more societies through each other.
2: And just to clarify, it isn't monasteries and convents together. It's each individually.
1: Well, I was saying monastery in the more general term where it's monasteries that included convents. So. It just
2: sounded like monks and nuns together in community. <laughs> it's like, it isn't Yeah, that. <laughs> yeah. Mon-
1: Monasteries as a generic term. Yeah, yeah nuns and monks separately obviously <laughs> but there's this idea where it's like from our genesis from our beginning um we're we're not able to identify ourselves unless we can identify the other first and i mean Whereas, i think that this is this is also also prevalent in the the natural world with animals like you have i mean if you look on bbc you can find all sorts of videos about the bull male rogue running through the plains looking for looking for a uh, looking for you know a competition to, to like take on this harem of of different um female animals and he has to combat the the male animal in order to get those to get those uh females and if he loses he's a rome male running by himself out in the wilderness with no identity in an unnatural way and where everything
2: that you're saying there's an underlying principle because you're saying like what that happens in genesis still applies to us today therefore you're saying that we haven't changed our natures who we are as man is still there but that is where i think even more fundamentally Rousseau goes wrong is saying that natures can change now that being said, Rousseau contradicts himself a lot. I encourage people to like read him and see that he does. <laughs> but that is one thing that he adheres to is that natures can't change. And again, that's prevalent in society today. If your nature can change, if you, it's some flux, you could be whatever you want, change from one gender to the other, or even be a dog. Uh, people are like acting or identify as whatever they want. Then there's just lawlessness. And this is, This is the crux and craziest idea is that, again, Whitman, Dewey, Richard Rorty, they say that there is no moral standard by which we need to adhere to. And in fact, Richard Rorty in his book, Achieving Our Country, hates all standardized like religion or anything that has a standard. He's like, no, there is no standard. We can progress and become better. However, how can you say that unless you have some standard by which you're saying you're progressing Mm. off of there needs to be something by which you can measure against that. You are becoming better and moving to a better point. And so they're denying that there is such a thing yet their whole argument is basing off of that.
0: Yeah. There has to be some foundational block for them to think their beliefs but they're denying that there is such a belief,
2: yet they're still arguing that. Does that that make sense? It's a very fundamental thing, but that is, in my opinion, the most wrong, logical thinking that is just rife in the left is think, period, is that they argue... Sorry?
1: I was going to say, can you kind of reiterate that for everyone? Yeah. Basically...
2: They say there is no moral standard by which man can adhere to. Our natures can change. We can be what we want. And in fact, we can progress and become better. But in order for you to say that you can progress and become better, you have to have some measurement, some scale by which to say that we're becoming better. So while they're saying that we're becoming better and using some scale, they're denying that there is any scale or measurement that you can go off of. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. Their their scale is like what was what was um good yesterday is bad today. Yeah,
2: but how can you even say that unless there's some measurement to go off of? But they're denying there is no measurement. There's to no, say you okay. get from point one to point two, there has to be like two different points, but they're denying that there is no space between the two points, essentially.
1: The line continues no having a previous point. It's like they, they, it's kind of like they see progressiveness or progression as being continuous without some sort of like distinctive point before that, which is impossible. It's just,
2: it just is philosophically and just logically impossible. It contradicts
1: itself. Yeah, even in the world of mathematics, like a continuous, um, a continuous like entity has a point before. Yeah. Because I mean, like if, well, it isn't even the point before, cause they'll say,
2: well, we have like come from that point, but the idea of coming from that point is measured off of some scale or some space. And they're denying that space period. So they say there is no standard yet. We can say that we have gotten from this point A to point B because of that standard that we're able to measure off of yet. They say there is no standard.
1: What would, you say a, a sense. Denial, what would you say a denial of that previous point? What would that look like practically?
2: What would that look practically? Um. Yeah, so our founding fathers, they said what they did then was good. Finally, the Constitution in 1776, like, good. They did that. Um, but that no longer applies to us. And in fact, it's wrong to implement it now because it's not good. And it doesn't apply. So essentially they're saying we have progressed in morality and truth and goodness in a way. And so they're adhering to some kind of standard out there. Who knows what it is, but they're denying that there is such a thing. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, and I think it's like, so they will recognize the point from which they came from, but they will say that that point was null and void. And they will say that from that, from that point, which is null and void, we need to progress forward. But they're still like pointing out like, okay, this how is- How do you know
2: you've progressed? How right. do you know if you progress if there is no moral standard? If we it's, say that we have progressed morally in terms of getting rid of slavery, in terms of like, now we have the civil rights movements and that's good. How do you know you've actually progressed if you're denying any moral standard whatsoever and saying
1: that there is none?
2: how right. can you regret? you can't I think
1: that that happens a lot nowadays is that we a oh, lot 100%. of percent back and they will say like you know uh people in the 60 or 18th century were completely wrong about everything well like well if they were completely wrong about everything we probably wouldn't exist today yeah but how- but how- they still yeah. but like at the same point like so they're they're pointing out like, okay, even if even if they're even if they're right about that, even if they're correct about the fact that our founding fathers were wrong about stuff. Yeah. Um, th- we're still at the point we are today. We still progress and we're they're still alive, those people who are claiming that. And they still have all the rights and the the different like abilities that they have. Yeah, mm-hmm. so, yeah, I mean, like it comes it comes to the question, like, what do you mean by wrong? And what do you mean by like? That's the whole
2: point. You can't say right or wrong if there is no measure by which you can say that there is right or wrong. If you deny
1: that, then
2: how can you say you progressed?
1: And that's where they get confused. And they say like, well, I mean, like there was the civil war and there was the civil rights thing. And like, well, I mean.
2: That's where you get ideas. Like, again, going back to Hegel. Hegel believes that Truth is entering into the world through a man's actions mm-hmm. is what it is. And it's coming more and more into fruition is what he would say. Um, and so things are becoming more and more true, if that makes sense. And so for Hegel, there is something by which we adhere to. But Richard Rorty, he says, no, that's not true. There's nothing that we adhere to. There's just us. So, if that's the case, we make up our own moral standards, but the crazy thing is that we have a measure by which we can say that we do progress, so we have to be adhering to something
1: well, and the other thing too is like how can you make up your own moral standards without having something to measure it by and like exact, what you're, that's, that's exactly what I'm saying yes like what was it um maybe it was Hegel or oh no no who wrote the 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 Leviathan was that Hegel? No, that was Hobbes. Hobbes, yes. Okay, so Hobbes, he had, like, the whole, like, spirit of the world thing going on. I believe nature's changed, too. Yeah, continue. The whole spirit of the world, like, this is, like, entity of, like, the whole spirit of the world moving in this one direction, Uh, and like, it's it's actualizing itself as history plays on. Yep.
2: And that's what Hegel takes and uses a lot in his philosophy of history.
1: There's no objective truth, there's just a constant movement forward, but, like, it doesn't. It doesn't stick to the ground. There's no like, um, how would you say it? Like, um, there's no virtual like mores. Like, there's no. There's nothing mooring it. Mooring it to the ground. Right. But the thing is, is like, in a sense, that if you believe that,
2: it it logically can make sense because there is something that we're thus adhering to or part of the plan. However, again, Richard Rorty, he says there is no plan. The only plan is what I decide and you decide and we decide together for the better of humanity. There is no plan. There's nothing we adhere to. There's nothing greater than us. The greatest thing is man itself. Yet they say that we progress, but again, how can you progress if, how can you say you progress if you have nothing to measure that off of?
1: Yeah. This reminds me a lot of um, Kirsten Maslach's thesis and her oration, where she talked about the difference between intellectual ideas and like physical moorings. So she like used like the, the terminology for like, you know, mooring, mooring a boat to the dock. Mm-hmm. If you don't have a rope that ties the boat to the dock, it's going to run adrift. Yeah. <laughs> and so the boat represents the intellectual, like it runs off into sea and it searches the unknown. But if you don't have a place for it to dock and tie down to you, it, you know, it doesn't stay. And I feel like nowadays we have a lot of the intellectual kind of like shipping off the sea, but we don't have a lot of the, the moorings that tie it back down to reality. And you know where that needs to happen is through sense
2: experience, contact with real things, not created by man. That's why you have like the rancher and the farmer who just have this like inherent wisdom in them. And they always have like something to say, if you will, or like. That's fine. We'll be able to figure it out. It's because they're in contact with things not created by man all the time that gives them wisdom essentially through that. But the vast majority of people don't have contact with anything other than things created by man that reflect himself. And that that's put, that puts him on a pedestal, makes him higher and stuff when it's like, actually, no, like at the end of the day, nature bats last.
1: Yeah. Grow your backyard gardens people come on
2: yes That's right, That's right. <laughs> get out into the wilderness
1: buy a cow get some lands like milk that cow get get your own food come on let's go yeah it's like um it's like they want to
0: separate themselves from a real reality because it's reality
2: own... is scary and harsh
0: it is yeah and i think that the thing is is they um I've been thinking about this for a while but Jordan Peterson's been talking a lot lately about like the idea of suffering. Yeah. And like why is it that there is suffering? And it's like well it's because we were given the greatest good which is free will. Yeah. So that means we're c- capable of loving, so mm-hmm. meaning truly really choosing what is best and doing what's good and willing the good. And because of that we also can like a dr Baxter said if you can go to the greatest height you can must be able to fall to the lowest pit mm-hmm. like that's like there's the choice there yeah. without the extremes of both you couldn't really go to the one because you wouldn't have true, true true free choice right so people see that suffering and evil is bad and they want to eliminate it because they see that as that like the only evil. Rather than saying there is evil, you need to learn how to choose freely to choose what's good. And from that, you'll bring about good.
2: Yep. And the crazy thing about that is that them being able to say that there is suffering means that they're calling forth to an idea that there is a right and wrong. Yeah. And when something wrong happens, there's suffering. But if you deny that there is no right and wrong, then how can you say like they're suffering?
0: Exactly, because what they're they're trying to shoot at the wrong cause. They're trying to say like, if we just forget about suffering, then it won't happen anymore. That's just blinding yourself. Yeah, exactly, because they don't want to experience it. Like, um, it's really cool seeing Peterson starting to get really a lot more Christian
1: lately. Yeah,
0: yeah. But he was saying that like. <laughs> all the way through especially exodus god told them to look at the very thing that was causing them suffering the snake on the pole mm-hmm. and by that they'll overcome it yeah and so he was saying that that's what christ was picturing with the cross is look at what evil does to the greatest thing and put god on a tree and we killed him but by looking at him we're able to see what ha- what it what that is so we're able to see the evil, yeah, and from that we're able to see the good and so it was like the reason why we're given suffering in this world or allowed to have suffering is so we can see how bad it is and still choose what's good because then you know you're making a good choice you're actually choosing what's right mm-hmm. so you try to blind yourself and say, oh, there's no bad then you're not actually fulfilling your capability as a person choosing what's good so you actually inhibiting yourself from being able to love gosh there's so much there yeah
1: how do you think you guys have um like seen suffering in your own lives and being able to like choose the good from that that's a really good question starting with tom um it's a really really good question um just to just to bring things down to a from an intellectual to a practical level, yeah. To yeah. concrete, so
0: at least for me, like let's say, like if if I wake up and let's say I have car trouble, to me I'm like, oh bummer, like that's gonna throughout the day. Mm. But then it's like, well, something happened here. I can either choose to complain about it or I can choose to fix it. If I choose to fix the problem, then not only am I making my future life better, but I'm also telling myself that this problem is not bigger than myself and so that I I can overcome this. Or like... Yeah. Like even like, you know, studying a book, like coming to different answers, it's, it's hard and it's strenuous because you're like... This doesn't make sense. Why am I not able to think about this? But then you're like, well, if I can overcome this struggle, I can come to the other side and realize, oh, I am bigger than that thing. And not saying that being greater than these problems is the end goal, but it's essentially saying, like, God I think God's trying to teach us that with him, because God is the one that can overcome all evil, he's showing us that if you follow him you will be able to overcome these things and come to the end point. And essentially, if you look at like everyday sufferings as an opportunity to choose what's good, then you'll be able to start seeing what's good more often,
1: which is really cool. Like, Have you ever come to a situation where like you come outside and you see your car having trouble and you've been like, you've, you've fallen into despair? Like, what is your reaction to that? Like if you actually like looked at yourself and said, like, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to me and you almost kind of like fallen into it. Yeah. Like you've you've kind of shown the positive side to it. What's the negative side of it and what's the learnings from that?
0: That's a good question. Um Yeah, like really hard moments in your life, like like if you lose a loved one or something like that, you don't it's really hard for you to see what's good in that. And it feels like, how am I ever going to be overcome this? And the negative side effect of like just kind of falling into that, all those feelings of despair and and hate and all those things. It essentially just shows you that, like, trying to picture say this the right way, but if you If you stay in the place of like like say darkness or whatever it is, then that evil thing that happened to you just conquered you. You're enslaved.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Essentially what it is. You kinda wish that your car had trouble that morning instead. (laughs) Yeah,
0: exactly. So like (laughs) Yeah, like if if you let it overcome you then it sets you trapped, and then it's inhibiting you from actually coming to something good. And a lot of times when we see something bad, we don't see the full picture, and so we're not able to see the good from it. But there's um, a quote that I learned a while ago from Tony Robbins, and he said that life doesn't happen to you, it happens for you. And if you're able to think about it in that context, then you're to see like how every bad thing ke- happens to you can be turned into something good. And I think that's the idea of salvation, essentially. It's like the worst thing happened. We lost eternity. And then Christ came again and renewed it all so we can have it again. So he used like the worst thing and said, no, I'm still greater than this. And so like even in the daily sufferings, it's like, how can I not let this enslave me? And how can I still see the good through this and choose what's good? And yeah. I think that's what was what's the redeemable aspect of everyday life. And then that'll start playing out in bigger things. But um Jordan Peterson talks, I don't know if you've heard of him saying that like he he believes you can only see what's really good if you look at what's really bad. Is he have
1: you heard about that? Yes, I have.
0: A really interesting thought. I'm not sure where to go with it, but
1: well, I did want to say that, um, it just kind of in in relation to that. Then I want to go to you, Joe. But so I was recently sent this quote from this saint. Um, I, I don't know the saint at all, but it's Saint Pasios, the Athenite, <laughs> and he says that. The problem is that we have lost God at the center of our lives. Once we make our love with God, love for God the primary focus of our lives and allow His grace to work through us, then we will be comforted, comforted and embraced in all His love. No matter what circumstances we encounter in life, all anxiety disappears. This is the aim of the way of life, to put God first and to seek the Holy Spirit. The anxieties of modern life are only symptoms of our separation from God. Mm. And so when you were saying those things, it brought that quote to mind because the things that really the 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 part of that quote that really got me was all the anxieties that we have about life, whether it's like loss of a loved one or our, our trucks having problems starting in the morning. If we have a real deep if that if that issue Produces a deep anxi- anxiety within us. It's because we don't have a center place of God in our life, mm-hmm. and we don't, or we don't have a center place of peace within our own life. Like we don't have like confidence in ourselves. So that's that 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 quote kind of reminded me of that. So I wanted to mention it, but that's a quick quote.
0: How about you, Joe? And the question was some kind of suffering in my life. Yeah, like tangible suffering you're saying isaac and how yeah
1: i guess um so i mean it was kind of a two-fold question i guess like uh what kind of suffering have you seen in your life where you've been able to overcome it and then another situation in your life where you were in the moment not able to overcome it but later on we're like okay well th- yeah. there's the answer but
2: um One huge one was I had a family member who was close to dying and um, another family member wouldn't let any of us go see that family member before they died.
0: essentially. Mm.
2: And there was a lot of screaming, yelling when I was there to go visit. Cause I was like, oh, I'm going to visit anyways. Um, and there was nothing I could do, really, except just push my way through. And I handled like a rosary and said some prayers with that one person kind of thing. And there was nothing I could do in the moment. It was just that and then leave. But it was that night that the one family member that was like arguing and stuff just broke down and was like, I'm sorry for everything that happened. It was hard. It was rough. I've just been alone and lonely here. I'm so glad you're here. And so there was like peace and resolution that came about. Oh. So if the strife didn't happen or that suffering wasn't encountered, then that person won't have it opened up essentially. Wow. That is one that I can really think about that I experienced in my life where it's just like, yeah, this is terrible. What's happening, you know, oh. but it had to be done. And then that way peace came about because of it, you know?
1: Yeah
0: yeah that's good
1: what about like circumstances where you've been like in a moment where you felt like you lost like really lost i mean like i'm I'm just trying to make this more relatable to more people because like it's it's easy to come up with stories that are like you know you come up on top and that story you just shared with us was you know even if you feel like you come on top you it's it's still yeah Yeah. but like um, there, there's definitely a lot of circumstances I'm sure for a lot of our listeners and for both of, uh, for all of us that were been like, okay, we felt like we've lost, but then it was later on that we realized that we won. Hmm. So, uh, Do you have anything like that?
2: Where it's like later on, you realize that you won.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Or it's like in the moment you were like, I am just at the bottom of the pit. <laughs> yeah that's
2: a deep hard question and i have to think here for a bit <laughs>
1: but... well no worries if you can't answer it. i mean like it yeah was just, i just wanted to ask was... that as kind of a
2: yeah no there there's one moment it was more like on a physical side it was during their professional instructor course uh to become a wilderness instructor that When you're out there, they can pop a scenario on you anytime where someone just like falls down and it's just like packs off. We have to start immediately like figuring out why they passed out, take care of them, and try and figure out how to evac them. And it could be one of your teammates that it happens to anytime. So you're like very wary of everyone around you kind of thing also. So there's like some competition kind of going on that's underlying throughout the whole trainings for like 10 days straight. Well, I was the weakest member in the group for sure, physically. And we're just hiking up this hill because we have to make it to a certain amount of time. And I wanted to take a break as we're hiking up. And they're like, no, we need to just keep pushing. I was like, no, I need a break. I'm dead tired. There's like 100 pounds in my pack. We're hiking uphill. I'm going to take a break. And I did. And I stopped the whole group. Mm -hmm. And for me, that was like a failure. Just like failed the group, but then also myself because I could have kept going. Because the Navy SEALs always say like when you think you can't go anymore, you only have forty percent of your potential. Yeah, I could have kept going, but I just stopped the group and took a break, and I've never forgotten that. Mm. And like now looking on it, it's like, well, I've gotten to a place physically where I can keep going and like do that. But that was definitely a moment where I felt like, yeah, that was a serious failure. I like. Let down the team and myself. Yeah. Wow. that's that's
1: pretty hard. Huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Especially when you're leading leading everyone else. Like you yeah. you know, you want to set an example on everything and be the be the strongest man there. It's it's hard. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. I was the weakest person there. <laughs> well, but yeah. my, turn, my turn to share since I asked both right. of you. <laughs> But I would say that like uh in terms of a moment where like I failed personally and you know God came to the rescue. <laughs> it's kind of a long story, but I when I was probably about fourteen or fifteen, I used to I used to jump onto um a train. <laughs> it sounds really bad i used <laughs> to jump on a train that would go by our house and ride it into town uh, with my with my with my bicycle until <laughs> you were just it's, doing the hobo
2: life literally
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, me. my brothers did this a couple of times but i did it once yeah. by myself once and i was like the youngest of my three my three other brothers so i like i i was really putting myself up on a limb um I jumped on this train, threw my bike on there, and rode into town. And I jumped off by myself, and I jumped off at the at the station right next to town. And I basically threw my I threw my bike off first, and I jumped off, and I uh, I did a couple like you know a couple sprints like after I jumped off because I timed it perfectly, and then I did this huge somersault. And I just like completely flipped over to like three somersaults and just smacked my face right on the train track, right on the rail. And by some grace of God, uh, by the grace of God, not some grace of God, by the grace of God and by the strength of my guardian angel, my forearm, my right forearm was out in front of me and it braced my fall against the rail where I just smacked my head on the rail I didn't actually fully impact it. My forearm took most of the impact. But I got up and I had I had glass shards all in my forearm. Um, and at that time in my life, I had a really good priest friend who lived right down the road from where I actually landed off the train. Um, and so I picked up my bike and I walked three or four miles to his house and he was having a um anniversary party for his parents marriage at his at his uh, um rectory that i didn't know about and i walked in and i was just like i've completely screwed up i did something completely illegal i you know i hurt myself really bad i've i've probably probably disgraced myself completely and just made a complete fool of myself and i walked in and I saw Father Jeff right away, the priest, and uh, his secretary was in the kitchen, like chopping up some some something for like some more derves or something. And I walked in with those glass shards, and my my forearm and my arm was bleeding. And I was just thinking to myself, like, yeah, uh, this is the stupidest thing I've ever done in my life. I'm a complete failure, and. I was just trying to do something cool like my brothers did and, you know, completely hurt myself and immediately without question, both father, Jeff, the priest and the secretary, they immediately pull the glass out of my arm and they bandaged me up. And they're like, Hey, like, okay, now that we know you're good, do you want to like hang out with us and join the party? (laughs) (laughs) And you know, they just, they obviously called my parents and everything and did all that, the responsible stuff. And, my my parents came by later but it was it was one of those moments where like i felt like i was completely lost and just i mean it wasn't very like spiritual lost. it was kind of like i'm just like you know i did this really stupid thing and i what i'm supposed to do afterwards and so i just walked to the nearest place i could get to and they just treated me with so much care and i just saw a lot of god's grace in that moment um how old were you isaac uh, I was not, I was like 13 or 14. <laughs> okay, yeah. But I was jumping on trains and riding into town. I did that multiple times. I can tell you more stories about that, but I, I probably shouldn't. But, <laughs> um, but yeah. So that was a moment where I saw like myself as being a complete failure. I mean, like not me, you know, not in, like an emotional, spiritual sense, but just kind of like, you know, I hurt myself really bad and I did a really stupid thing. And despite how horrible and embarrassed I felt, cause I was, I, it took me a long time to knock on that door and be like, I need some help. Mm. Um, and the, the, they didn't ask me any questions. They just bandaged me up and were like, Hey, have some lobster, you know, it's all good. Um, but yeah, that was, that was kind of my experience with that God moment, I guess you could say. Um, but i had an experience i think last year which was kind of the kind of the opposite and l- later on i realized it was a blessing i was driving down to louisiana in my 1983 bronco and i broke down in this little town called electra texas in my bronco the the front end of my bronco like the front axle basically exploded um, and I got out of the car. It was a Sunday morning, so no shops were open or anything. No O'Reilly's or anything in Texas were open. And I got out and tried to fix it myself. I couldn't, I hadn't, I didn't have the f- sufficient tools to get it done myself. And I ended up calling a tow truck, um, uh, thinking that I had AAA, but I realized I didn't. And I ended up having to pay like a thousand dollars for that toe to get to Dallas. And in that, that entire, that entire experience was just completely miserable. Like nothing about that experience was enjoyable at all. And it wasn't until months later that I realized how much of a blessing that was like that. I'd been put that I had been tried and put through that experience of dealing with hardship that way. But it was a moment where I was just like, Just so angry and so infuriated and just like, why is this happening to me? Mm -hmm. Uh, But it wasn't until like, yeah, months later, I realized like, wow, now I know exactly what to do if I break down in the middle of somewhere, even though I paid a lot for it, like God gave me the grace to recognize that that experience Recognize months later that that experience was, you know, fruitful in some, in some, in some, uh, some way. So there you go. There's, it
2: there's... wasn't just a reliance on yourself kind of thing, but having to realize that. Yeah. You aren't the one who can tackle and solve every problem in a sense.
1: Well, yeah. And that was, that was the funny thing too, is that in the moment I felt like it was just me. And the way I was mentally and spiritually, I was kind of like, I just need to figure this out. And it sucks. I hate every second of this. But if I had just like put a little bit more trust in God and just prayed, probably like while I was waiting for the tow truck to come, I probably would have been happier. But it wasn't until months later that I realized like, yeah, I mean, God was helping me all the way through, even though I wasn't asking for it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah makes sense.
0: Yeah, it's interesting like like I just had an experience last week and I haven't really seen the benefits of it yet except maybe that I'm just a lot more thoughtful about everything I go into now. I I got scammed of a lot of money. Oh, no. Yeah. And yeah. I, I realized that after it happened that i was like well that was really stupid i thought it was legitimate but realizing now i'm like okay there were some warning signs that i didn't pay attention to so like i'm not sure what i'm supposed to learn 100 percent from that at the moment but like just thinking about it like the day it happened i was like well i could either let it envelop me and just kind of stop everything else I'm doing or just realize, like, you know, this could be fuel for the flame. like, Mm -hmm. like, Because I think it's, you can use those types of things to, like, propel you towards something better. And if you do it, then you're like, wow, like, there's actually a lot more fire in me than I thought there was. Mm -hmm. Like, maybe this was what I needed, actually, to just say, like, I really know what I don't want to do. I don't want other people to do this to me again. So I'm not going to put myself in a position. And because it hurt me so badly, I want to be so much better for someone else that they have a wonderful experience by interacting with me. Mm -hmm. So like, be the total opposite of a scammer. Instead of a scammer, I'll be the over-deliverer that just tries to give as much as he can, like in my business or whatever, and just like... You know, so it puts, it puts that contrast in place of like, this is what stealing looks like, and this is what giving looks like. It's just yeah. a real
2: hand experience. Was it PayPal? No, no. There's a PayPal scam that went around that. I was like, wait, I don't even have PayPal. I'm deleting this. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: Yeah. You gotta that's, be- that's,
1: yeah. I was going to say, that's kind of what my experience was with the, the car breaking down in Texas was that. You know, I thought I had AAA, and I called them, and they were like, "Oh, you don't have AAA anymore." So I was like, "Oh crap, I need to pay for the tow truck." But the the tow truck guy told me after we were like driving to Texas, he was like, "Oh, you could have like signed back up for like seventy dollars, and they would have covered it." So I could have spent seventy bucks versus you know a thousand, and that was kind of something that I learned later on was like, "Oh." You know, if someone else is uh, in trouble with a car wreck or like something like that, I just tell them, hey, you know, get get coverage before you do it. Before that, like you get coverage now. And then if that happens, then you can can cover yourself. Or if you had it and it just expired, then you can re-sign up and then you can get that coverage, that kind of thing. So I learned that experience. I learned that from that experience. But it was, like, just from, like, the heat of the moment, there's no way to kind of, like, solve that issue, kind of like what you're saying, Tom.
2: Yeah, yeah, learning, like, learning real things hurts. Yeah, it just yeah. does. Like, through that real experience, you know, mm-hmm. I was just thinking how this is on a much smaller scale, but, like, learning Latin at Wyoming Catholic College, oh, I know. that was hard. but once you have like a sort of grasp of it it's like oh wait this is beautiful like i can actually start to engage with this or other things in life like dancing or playing music you have to go through the hardship of like learning it first you know but that's just that's just life but a lot of people don't want that because they're scared because of your lack of control or an unwillingness to maybe embarrass themselves or whatever and then you're just stuck You know, like I'm saying, you're just enslaved, essentially, you
1: know. Yeah. Yeah. The fear fear of embarrassment is very, very powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Because you don't want other people to look down
0: on you forevermore because of that. I think that's the, Mm -hmm. I think there's this idea that people won't forgive you because you have a hard time forgiving yourself. Kind of like what you were saying, Isaac, that imaginative self you place on other people yeah so like if you embarrass yourself in front of others you're like oh they're gonna not really want to be around me anymore yeah right but, you're yeah go ahead but then if you just think about for two seconds like well if they did something like that would i forgive them and you're like oh yeah right
1: that against them like that's, that's why the would cure. i do that that's the cure to the whole thing and i've been i've honestly been struggling with this for a while and like have been working on it a lot is like OK, if you if if I do something that I think is embarrassing, do I think it's embarrassing or do I think that they think it's embarrassing? Yeah. Like if they did that same thing, like if I farted in front of a bunch of people, would I be like, would I laugh at it or to be like, oh, you're you're stupid and you're horrible? Yeah. Like, oh, no, 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 no. Of course, I would say that, like, you know, I'd laugh at it and say like, oh, it's funny. Everyone does it. But if I do it in front of everybody else, my immediate reaction is like, oh, no. Just that is the worst thing that's ever happened to me.
2: And yeah, it's such... you would look down on yourself if you did like condescendingly look at them or make a mark, right? You you would look down on yourself for doing that to them.
1: Well, and yes, of course. And here's the even the more dangerous thing is that if you stay in that mindset of like, Of thinking that other people think the the same way about you that you do if so like if i farted in front of both of you and i was like oh crap that was really embarrassing tom and joe probably think i'm the worst person ever what i'm doing is i'm telling myself and i'm creating this imaginative world where joe and tom hate me Mm. and i've seen this play out in my life multiple times where i've been i've done something embarrassing and then imagine the other person who saw that happening like seeing that as something that's really horrible the way that I see it and just I and then what happens from that is that you if you don't treat that immediately what happens is you suspect the other person of ill will towards you yeah and then if that happens then what cultivates is this Um, sense of like, oh, that person's my enemy because I imagine them thinking about me the same way that I do, which is horrible. It's a horrible thing. And like, like, therefore, they're my enemy because, you know, like if I, if I, I don't know, for example, like if I, if I cussed or swore in front of somebody and like my reaction to that would be like, oh, shoot, I didn't mean to do that in front of them. They heard that they probably think that was just as horrible as I think it was. And therefore they're my enemy now because they're going to hold that against me. Yeah. And And, that's the trap. That's a huge trap because it can lead you to hate people for no reason.
2: And the reason why I was saying like, if you imagine yourself in the other person's shoes, if you will, and you look down on them, you'll be like, Oh wait, no that's not nice I'm not gonna do that you know well maybe we should like also think that where it's like someone does look down on you or like embarrass you more for something that like wasn't your fault or anything it's just like wait no that was the wrong reaction from the person unfortunately
1: Mm -hmm. right right right
0: yeah like it's you're almost declaring what someone else will do based on what your perception of them is Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, yeah, you're like, there's, I'm not going to allow you to be good to me. Is essentially what we're thinking.
1: Yeah, it's, it's very uncharitable. And it's like, it, I mean, it's like, it, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier about, like, you see the world through your own eyes. And if you do that too much, it can lead you to that uncharity of like, you know, this person must think horribly of me because I think that was horrible mm-hmm. of me to do. And you don't allow that other person to show you mercy or show you charity or be like, just, you know, it's okay, dude. You messed up. Like, whatever. No one cares. Like, it's no big deal.
2: Yeah, Um, What's happening more than ever.
1: Yeah. What's
2: happening more than ever is not a problem with people loving other people, but people receiving love. Yeah. Because that's like an insult or hurt to your pride, especially if someone helps you. When you're down in the dumps, or you did something wrong, and that person receives you, it hurts, you know, and right? plus it, probably that's in place. Mm. And yeah, people struggle with that.
1: When so someone compliments you, if you feel bad about yourself, and someone compliments you about something you did right, you just joking. You're, that compliment saying, "No, I didn't do that right. What are you talking about? Like, I'm I'm a horrible person." Yeah. And then you like, okay, well, you're just. You're just sucking up or you're just, you know, you're just saying that. You're just saying that to be nice to me or something. And yeah. and then it turns into this horrible cycle of like
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: No matter what compliments you get, it always turns into a negative
2: thing. Though if you want to receive more compliments, you just say, "Oh no, it isn't true. Do you really think so?" And then you get more compliments that way.
1: There okay, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Joe's an expert fisherman. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Got to Pulling at the bait there.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: well, it sounds like another good podcast conversation. So <laughs> we
0: should probably wrap this one up, but it was it was really good talking with you guys about all these different subjects. I mean, I learned a lot tonight, and I've got a lot to think about. But, yeah, you know. thanks for <laughs> having me on. Yeah, I'll definitely have to have you on again. This is good. Yeah, I would love that. Yeah, well, um to so all of our listeners, thank you again for coming in and um hearing our conversation for this week. Hopefully it was beneficial for you as much as it was for us. And um go check us out on YouTube, Rumble, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Um always try to do an episode a week. It drops on Fridays. Um we're also on Twitter. Instagram, um, for like daily updates, shorts, things like that. So thank you again for always being an avid listener and hope to see you next time. Take care and God bless.